The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. item is uh, uh, Zoning Board of Appeals training, so I'm going to turn it over to you, Jill. Great. Thank you. Nice to see everybody here. Well, most of you. Um, so we have the opportunity uh, as the Zoning Board of Appeals uh, sort of gets back going again. We don't have that many appeals on a regular basis, um, so it's nice to have an opportunity to do some training from time to time. So we like to do it if not every year, maybe every other year. So it seems like a good time to do that. Um, so we'll, it gets loaded up on Susie's end, just for the benefit of anybody who might be watching, um, to let them know that the Zoning Board of Appeals is uh, staffed, if you will, uh, by the city council. And so that is something that um, some communities do, some have their own um, separate membership for the ZBA, but in this case, um, as in some other communities, um, the city council serves as zoning board of appeals as well. Oh, there we go. All right, so we don't have a terribly long uh, training presentation, but where we wanna get started is um, just sort of an overview, talk about the establishment and the structure of the Zoning Board of Appeals, talk a little bit about your roles and responsibilities, um, a little bit about meetings and how to run them, and what we call etiquette, which is sort of like the finer points of running a meeting and, and how to interact with each other and with staff and applicants. So getting started, I'm jumping up to slide four, I think. There we go. Um, so we start sort of with the statutory authority. So how do we, in the city of Lathrop Village uh, come to have a Zoning Board of Appeals. And this is included in Michigan Zoning Enabling Act. Um, it's PA 110 of 2006. It says the zoning ordinance shall establish a Zoning Board of Appeals. Um, and then there's a few different um, standards that kind of go along with that. Um, in communities, they uh, have a minimum of three or five members depending on population. Uh, most communities have a five to seven member Zoning Board of Appeals. On the next slide, um, there's a little bit of a difference. Um, and, and again, this sort of points to the ability of the city of Lathrop Village to have city council serve as the ZBA that's committed in cities and villages. Um, and then a special provision for counties and townships that one member must be from what is called the zoning commission, which in most communities is the planning commission. Um, and so serving in that liaison capacity. Um, the remaining members are selected um, and they are typically members of the community. Uh, if you go to the next slide, um, typically the terms of appointment are three years and they're staggered so that we don't have any um, expiring, um, you know, the whole group expiring at once. We don't necessarily worry about this case because it is the city council. Um, some communities do pay a per diem or per meeting fee um, for the service. It's very, usually very minor. It's going to Get rich or have a second career as a zoning board field member. Um, if you go to the next slide, we have also a requirement that um, those zoning board appeals should adopt the rules of procedure. Um, so I believe we've got that. So going into roles and responsibilities. 
So in general, the Zoning Board of Appeals is a quasi-judicial body. Um, it is an important part of due process for applicants and municipalities. Um, and all um, decisions or actions requests of the Zoning Board of Appeals are public hearings and they are noticed as such. Um, so generally speaking, if we go to the next slide, um, they are important for uh, planning and zoning purposes. They can essentially make or break the community's planning and zoning efforts. Um, they can affect, the decisions can affect the character of an area or an entire city. And again, the ongoing training is really useful. Um, as a general rule, and I'm gonna say it up front, um, even though I've gone through these training in other communities and at the end, usually if people are paying attention, they'll say, so if I'm understanding this correctly, we really shouldn't be granting any variance. <laughs> and I say, yes, that you have been listening and that's true. So not to say that you shouldn't grant any, but they really are intended to be that relief for, for really unique situations. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. So if we go to the next slide, we look at responsibilities. So all actions of the Zoning Board of Appeals are application driven. That means that a property owner is going to seek relief from a particular requirement of the zoning ordinance. Um, they also could be coming to the Zoning Board of Appeals for an interpretation. So some clarification on what uh, a map means. Um, you might see a case where there was split zoning on a parcel, which what how that might affect the uh, property um, or interpretations of the zoning ordinance itself. Um, once a determination is made on okay, uh, some wording in the zoning ordinance, if an applicant disagrees with that, they can, um, or if there's any clarity in um, uh, confusion about it, that either that applicant could come see you or um, even administratively, we could ask the ZBA to make an interpretation sort of ahead of that. Um, with respect to appeals, they're related to a decision. Um, they could be related to a decision of the administrative official or the body, like the zoning administrator, the building official, uh, the planning commission or legislative <clears throat> body. Um, they could be um, related to the special land use or PUD only when they're permitted um, by the zoning ordinance, which isn't the case here. Um, they can be also um, for a temporary use approval, but we don't have that in here as well. Um, appeals to decisions regarding the zoning ordinance issues are the responsibility of the ZBA, and those appeals have to be based on the record. So, for example, if someone um, is denied a building permit because they don't meet a certain standard and the applicant disagrees with that, they can present that their case to the Zoning Board of Appeals and say that there was something about the way in which the standards were applied in this case that were incorrect. So this isn't, and we would convey this to an applicant, it's not that we're shopping for answers. We don't get a no from one um, authority and then seek another to get a, a contrary opinion. We're really looking at what was the information that was presented and did they miss something? Um, so we don't um, look at, we really only are addressing just what is being asked in that case. So when we're looking at administrative appeals, Really, we're just looking at was the decision being appealed made properly? And if it is, then we uphold it by denying the appeal. And no, then the ZBA reviews the case based on the standards of the review. And those should be outlined in our zoning ordinance as well and make a decision on that. We're not finding new information. We're really only looking at the information that was presented originally as well. And I might just stop at that point uh, if anybody has any questions about the administrative appeals portion of that. 
but do you want to add anything? I'll just um, also let you chime in from time to time. If I feel if you feel the need. Okay, I'll continue then. Okay, so next uh, potential appeal um, or uh, request before you could be an ordinance and a map interpretation. So with ordinance interpretations, we would try to look to previous interpretations. Um, it may not be the exact same item, but it could be something similar. Maybe we're looking at the same section. Maybe we're looking at something that's related um, to see how determination was made in the past. Maybe looking at the, the facts of that appeal um, and what was happening around that. Really trying to be as narrow as we can. We're not making things up here. We're not putting into the interpretation something that doesn't exist in the ordinance language. Um, really, and then looking to make sure that our interpretation is practical and um, we have the ability to enforce it. Um, if it's a map situation, the ZBA cannot move the zoning district boundary line, um, but it could, um, there may be something about that map that um, may be unclear. And so we may be asked to, to do some interpretation. I haven't seen yeah, many of those. Of that no, but what was that? I was just asking, you, you started to answer my yeah. question. I was gonna ask if you had an example of that. No, not really. Um, it, it, I think would probably tend to be more of the case if we had a map that didn't base it on parcel lines. So there may be some confusion about where the line is, or maybe if a parcel had some split zoning where the district actually falls within that property, that might be something that's asked of you. But I don't think we have any cases like that here. Um, and then there may be administrative appeals. Um, Again, it's really just about uh, an error in the order of the requirement, the permit, or the decision or refusal. We kind of covered that already. Um, I think I'll skip over the special land use and the PUD appeals because those are not appealable here um, to the ZBA. Um, so on dimensional variances, these will be the most common uh, requests that the Zoning Board of Appeals will, will see. Um, all the decisions shall be based on um, uh, and put on the record. So findings of fact will have included. Um, where it can be tricky sometimes is when the ZBA uh, members are putting themselves in the shoes of either city council or the planning commission. Um, but your task is very, is very different and you're very much focused just on the standards of the zoning ordinance itself. Um, so looking at um, whether, um, I've got some of the slides mixed up a little bit here. Um, skip to the next one. Skip to the next one there. Um, looking at um, the situation in the case itself. So is the problem self-created? Um, do we have unique circumstances um, that exist with this property? Um, would strict compliance with the ordinance prevent the owner from using his or her property for a permitted use? Will a lesser variance than requested give substantial relief to the owner and be consistent with what's happening on adjacent properties? And will the spirit of the ordinance be observed and public safety secured and substantial justice to be done? That's, that's quite a mouthful. Um, and what we're really saying is we're looking at um, what is the case before us? Um, how did the applicant come to meeting this variance? What are they asking for? Um, and then looking at, is, is there some other way that this um, project that they're looking at could be done in a way that more closely conforms to the zoning ordinance, if not matches the zoning ordinance? Is there something unusual about their property that prevents them from complying with the standards of the ordinance? In some cases, we don't really have much of that this here, but there could be uh, an unusual topo topography 
Um, we don't really have that that much here, an irregularly shaped lot. Now you may see some of those um, come up from time to time um, that uh, make some of those setbacks um, challenging. Um, is the request consistent with the character of the area? Would the variance confer a special privilege? So are we asking, um, would a property owner be asking for something that otherwise other people would not really be able to do? Um, looking at the minimum amount necessary, that can be a really uh, tough thing to ask for people as they're coming to the appeal. Um, and it, because it may involve asking if they, for example, if it's an addition, have you thought about making a smaller addition on your house? But it's a reasonable question because the standards are what the standards are. And the ordinance says what it says and the setbacks are what they are. And, and it is expected that um, that's what the city intends for those areas. And so ensuring that there are no um, just, uh, let's say, requests made just because that's what they want. Um, that's where we have to say what well, we're so Sometimes it can be a tough, a tough thing to say no, but sometimes we have to do that um, if it doesn't really meet the, the setbacks um, or the ordinance requirements. Um, again, or there are other alternatives that would minimize or eliminate the need for a variance. So the same question, same questions of the applicant. Um, and we do try to work with applicants up front to go through some of those things. Have you considered putting this in the backyard? Have you considered um, minimizing the, the setback? Um, so trying to help them or, or they say, or, or when they come to us and say, well, we tried that, but it, it didn't work. And we say, well, make sure that you convey that to the Zoning Board Appeal so that they understand some of the iterations that you went through before you came to this point. So in the zoning ordinance, we have um, the establishment of the criteria for granting the variance and really the ZBA's analysis should just be looking at those criteria. Again, only the minimum variance that's needed um, to provide the substantial justice should be granted. And in general, that means granting few variances. Um, if though we see that there's a consistent um, demand for a certain kind of variance uh, with respect to a certain kind of setback, um, and whether the ZBA grants them or not, um, that might be an opportunity for the city to take a look at that variant, at that standard and say, you know, we've gotten a lot of this and we've had this in the past. Um, I would say probably maybe three years ago, we um, did some work looking at the height of accessory structures, I think it was, because we'd had a lot of requests. I think the old height was like eight feet or something, and we increased it to 10, because we'd had a lot of requests of the Zoning Board of Appeals. And the Zoning Board of Appeals, your hands were tied um, because there was, it was difficult for people to say, um, you know, we have a hardship because we can't build a garage um, or an accessory structure. Um, but then again, um, you know, looking at those requests, it, it seemed that ZBA shared that with the Planning Commission and asked the Planning Commission to take a look at that. So we'll get into a couple of examples of dimensional variances on the next slide. I'm just using the R1 district here. Um, go to the next slide with the zoomed in look. So we're gonna assume here that the, the lot is conforming. So we're gonna assume that that's the case um, and that there's no natural features to avoid. So we don't have any trees or topography or anything that's unusual of the lot. Um, the red line shows the five foot setback line and it shows a new house that's only two feet from the side lot line. Um, and so if we go to, so in this case, we would be asking, um, you know, you've got, it looks like you've got plenty of room here on the site. You thought about shifting the house over to comply 
um, and uh, working with the applicant to really identify what is driving the location decision in this area and can we um, do anything to change that, that uh, request. Um, and a, a second example on the next slide would show maybe something very different. Um, and so this case, we have a, a very oddly shaped piece of property. Maybe there's a wetland on there. Um, we see a, a place where the new house is only two feet from the lot line. But in this case, it may be that this was the only location they could really put the, the house. And it's a small encroachment, whereas the last example was the whole side of the house. This one is just a corner of it. So again, these would be, you're going to see like, probably very different things each time you get a request, which is really the purpose for the ZBA um, being in existence anyway. Um, so if you go to the next slide, you'll see um, in making your decision, the ZBA should consider the location of the property, the use of surrounding properties, the use of the structure in relation to the zoning district in which it's located, and any other interest that you think is important um, as you're considering um, making a decision. Um, and so, um, again, we do have public hearings for these before actions. And um, in addition to those with the dimensional variances, there may be um, variances for non-conforming lot provisions. We did have a case on this um, with respect to non the non-conformities last year, um, where the ZBA was asked to consider um, the type of non-conformity um, that was existing with the property. Um, and one path would preclude them from expanding and the other path would allow them to expand. Um, so that's another um, interesting request. Um, not something that we get terribly often. I don't remember another one actually in several years before that. Um, so the interpretations of the zoning ordinance are the responsibility of the ZBA to kind of go back to um, the interpretations of their um, and then once we make those interpretations, that becomes the official standard. So we want to make sure that when we do make these determinations that we're being clear in the motions um, and that those are being kept as records on file. Um, and then I'll go back into um, the other types of variances, the use variances. Um, you may uh, grant use variances um, and they are only approved by a two-thirds majority of the ZBA. Um, in this case, the applicant would show that the strict application of the ordinance would result in an unnecessary hardship. Um, and that would mean that the property could not otherwise be put to a reasonable use. So something else that's permitted in that district um, is just not possible. Um, and that the hardship is not self-created, it's due to unique circumstances, that any new use would be in character with surroundings and the variance is the minimum necessary. Um, I think that generally speaking, we discourage the use variance, um, it's very difficult for someone to establish to any level of satisfaction that, um, that no other use is viable. That's the, the ordinance provides for quite a few numbers of uses in every district. Um, and so we would find that that's generally not a, a good path to take. Um, that there's reasons why uses aren't included within specific districts. And so we try to avoid those. I don't know if you want to add in that. I'm just, just going to say the example of that is like when a commercial property owner will come in and say, I have to use this parcel as a drive through and our ordinance doesn't allow for it. Well, there's a, a plethora of other opportunities to utilize that, that commercial property within the confines of the zoning ordinance. So, Joe's uh, right. And then just, I wanted to add uh, with the dimensional type variance request, um, it's, it's really important to incorporate the standards that are set forth in the zoning ordinance when making a decision or a motion or 
primarily on the motion because uh, she didn't reference it before, but the, the fact finding is, is the, the, that function of the ZBA is extremely important and having a good record of why you made the decision or why you, why you did grant the, the variance or why you didn't is extremely important because if it goes to the next step, which would be an appeal to the circuit court, then that record or that decision that the ZBA made is, is what the basis of that appeal and, and ultimately the basis of the city's either defense uh, or prosecution of, of that enforcement would be. So very important to, to review the ordinance and include that in, in your fact finding when, when you are stating your motion and stating your rationale for, for your decision. Right, and I will get to, I'll remind you of those things again shortly. Um, if you want to skip up to slide 30, I think, I'm going to skip the next couple of slides uh, where we get to the Zoning Board of Appeals meetings. We'll actually go one more. Um, so uh, for scheduled meetings, um, generally we have a set meeting date. We have to have a quorum of majority of the members, um, just like you do for your council meetings. And then the regularly scheduled meetings can be canceled um, less than 18 hours before the start of the meeting. So those are similar to um, the meeting standards that you have as council as well. Um, if we go to the next slide, we'll see the notice requirements. So like we do for the planning commission does for um, public hearing notices, for the ZBA, we have a notice requirement. So we have a 15 day notice requirement and those go to the owners of the property that are subject uh, in question. And then everyone that is within 300 feet of that. Um, this is important um, for our meeting deadlines to be aware of that when we have applicants that come in to understand that um, it's not just you to get your stuff on the agenda, you just submit your things that you know we have to go through and make sure it's all accurate and the information is there. And then we have this notice requirement that we need to make sure that we um, have out. Um, so the next one is just a little bit more of the detail on that, which I think I'll skip. Um, the noticing requirements again are really just, and I've skipped their next one, um, describing the nature of requests so that the neighbors have a little bit of an idea of what is being requested, um, the property that's the subject of the request, when and where the request will be considered, and how um, people can provide their, their feedback for that. So going to the next one. Um, so this is really important, the Open Meetings Act information. Um, I know that you've talked about this from council standpoint. Um, we talk about it with Planning Commission. Um, Open Meetings Act has been around for a while, um, really there to promote government transparency. Um, and it requires that a meeting of a public body must be made um, open to the public and decisions of the public body have to be made at, a, at an open meeting. Um, we have to make sure that we're creating, um, accommodating uh, the general public with reasonable accommodations, with ample notification. Um, and now that we've had, we've gone through the pandemic and we've had um, the legislation that allowed us to have those uh, remote meetings over the last year and a half um, that ended at the end of last year, um, that was something that was different, but it was uh, modified in a way to still continue to afford the public the opportunity to participate. Um, some communities have, have ended that and are just, you know, in, all in person again, um, but it's good to see that communities like Lathrop Village are providing a hybrid approach to um, at least allow people the opportunity to participate or just to even just view. Um, so I think that's really great that you're continuing to do that, um, despite the complications that are associated with it. 
So if we go to the next slide, um, conducting the ZBA meetings, again, all meetings must be in compliance with the Open Meeting Meetings Act. Um, the ZBA should conduct business according to your adopted rules, your bylaws, um, beginning on time and following the written agenda is important. All comments should be directed through the chairperson. All deliberations should be in the open. Um, it's, it's probably harder for that to happen here, especially with your um, see screenings too, but um, not holding private conferences during the meeting. Um, it can be distracting. And even if you're not really talking about anything related to the case, if you're saying like, gosh, it's really hot in here. Um, if you're whispering that to someone that may have the appearance that you're conducting some other kinds of side conversations, we want to try to avoid that. Um, Express your opinions, and I would have added to this, I should have, um, ask questions. So you really want to make sure that you have all the information that you need to be able to make a decision, um, and then express your opinions, and then focusing on the request that's being made. So the chairperson's role is to maintain order throughout the meeting, enforce the meeting procedures, um, ensure courtesy is maintained and speakers are not interrupted. Um, I, the last one, I think it, that's a little bit extreme about calling witnesses and things like that. We don't typically see that kind of thing, but I guess it's part of the state statute. Um, and so for the public hearings themselves, having the, the ground rules for uh, the public hearing, I think are, are really important. Um, there are times where you'll see um, a lot of people come out for a meeting uh, whether they're in person or if they're participating online. Uh, and there'll be times where you don't really see anybody. Um, when you do have a big crowd that turns out for something, um, you may have a heads up about it. You may just know from your uh, talking with your friends and neighbors in the community that something's going to be controversial. Um, so it's helpful to describe those ground rules. And that's really um, that uh, to help run and ensure a, a smooth meeting. So the speakers should address the chairperson. Comments should be brief and to the point. I think we do have a three minute time limit in general here, which I think is really important. Um, speakers should be reminded, and unfortunately we do have to remind folks at the outset sometimes to be courteous and respectful. Um, it, it doesn't hurt to just remind folks. Um, and then they really should be only be addressing one ZBA one time. So if they say something, unless it's up to the chairperson if, if you would like to allow another person to, or a person to speak a second time, um, but you know, explain that once everybody's had a chance to participate and if only if it's something new information, we don't need to stand up and repeat the same things again. Um, it's just to make sure that we're respecting everyone's time and we're moving um, items along in a quick way. Um, and then uh, for the next slide for additional guidelines, um, it's really important to not engage uh, in debate with audience members. It can be hard when um, things people are questioned. Uh, maybe they'll point a question at somebody directly, um, but then it's up to the chair or to you as ZBA members to just defer to the chair of the ZBA um, and wait until there's, there's a question that's actually asked. Um, that can be very hard sometimes if there's a lot going on. Uh, but we haven't really had very many controversial items as of late for the ZBA, I would say. Um, which, yeah. So, um, and then once the public hearing is closed, all the comments should come from the, the ZBA members themselves. So that's the time when you all have the opportunity to talk amongst yourselves, ask additional questions. You may ask the applicant questions. You may ask a neighbor of the subject property questions. 
just to get clarification if something was, was if there's something that would help you make your decision better. Um, and then once the motion is made and seconded, this is on the, oh, here, here, the next one, um, all comments from that point should be at the motion at hand. Um, and then in that motion, again, referring to any findings of fact that you have, um, include the ordinance from which the variance is being requested. Um, and as detailed as you can be, whether you're approving it or not approving it. Um, and then the chairperson should repeat the motion and then ask for the vote. And then once the vote's taken, the matter's done, the next item on the agenda should be presented. Um, there doesn't need to be any kind of additional de deliberation or discussion on that. When we think about public meetings, we like to offer our tips for orderly public meetings. Um, it doesn't hurt to have, and I think you may have the um, public participation rules printed somewhere on the back of the agenda or at the bottom of the agenda. And if you don't, that might be something that we want to think about adding to all of the meeting agendas. Um, and those would be some of the things that we just talked about. Um, note that every question does not have to be answered. Um, sometimes they're just not relevant. Uh, sometimes you cannot answer them. Um, sometimes they're really rhetorical questions that don't really need to have the be answered. Um, but it's helpful to say that up front. So uh, we'll take all of the, if we see a big, big hearing with a lot of people that come out and want to uh, ask their questions or speak their comments just to make a list and then at the end we'll answer all the questions that we can um, instead of doing them as they come because that can really drag meetings out um, and take up a lot of time that's not necessary. Um, if things get out of hand you can always take a recess um, and not feel compelled to make a decision the night of the hearing if you think that the postponement would lead to a more informed decision. So this is where we like to remind you that um, particularly if something is controversial don't just postpone the meeting because you don't want to make a decision in front of the crowd that's with you. Um, if you feel like you can make a decision, like nothing's really going to change if you wait a month, you can make it at, the, at that time and just take care of it. Um, if you feel though that there's additional information that you need to make a decision and the applicant doesn't have it handy, um, then that's an appropriate thing to make a postponement um, with the specification in your motion to postpone of the information that you're asking the applicant to provide. Um, again, the, oh, and it's, I think, worth reminding you, the ZBA represents the interests of the entire community and not just people who are at the public hearing. So a lot of times it's hard when you're faced with an, uh, an angry group of folks, um, but remembering that there are many other people who don't come to the meeting. Um, and so it's just something to keep in mind. Um, once the hearing is closed, though, on the agenda item, then the public should not be involved in the discussion at all, again, unless the chair asks for clarification on items. Again, for the motions, as we make the motions, we would have um, the motion includes the maker of the motion and who seconds the motion, the description of the request. So it might be um, to ask to grant a two-foot waiver in the required five-foot side yard setback. Um, the action taken, approval, denial, postponement, any conditions attached to the approval, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, the reason for the action taken, so it's related to the review standards. So we find that this um, situation is not self-created, um, that there's a giant tree that's worth saving in the um, applicant's backyard that includes an addition, things of that nature. So we're talking about why we're granting it. Um, and then referencing any staff reports that may be appropriate. Um, it's helpful to make sure everybody's clear on the motion. So you may again want to repeat that as the chair. 
um, and then only entertaining one motion at a time. You can, as a ZBA, make a motion that includes conditions. You could approve a variance request subject to certain conditions. Um, they do need to be reasonable, which I probably goes without saying, but um, I think it's helpful to think about what it is that we are concerned about with respect to a project that might have uh, dimensional encroachment. Um, so maybe it's uh, noise related, and maybe we would suggest uh, have a condition that some screening go around, whatever that is. Maybe it's a garage. Um, we ask for additional screening um, because that's related to the protection of the neighbors um, while still allowing the improvement to take place. Um, designed to protect natural resources, health, safety, and welfare, um, and the well being of the users, residents, landowners, and community. Related to a valid exercise of the police power and necessary to meet the intent and purpose of the ordinance. So we, we're not going to make a, a, a condition. Um, but something that's really related to both the project at hand and the ordinances that are associated with them. And then the motion should ensure who's responsible to ensure that conditions are implemented. So for example, if we say, um, if we use the screening as an example, um, with the screening to be approved by the building official, then that lets, the, lets everybody know whose responsibility it is. And if you're gonna include a condition like that, then you can even be a little bit more specific about the kind of if it matters to the case, the kind of screening that we're talking about. Uh, low evergreen screen, that might be sufficient um, to give them a little bit of direction. Um, so we've got a sample motion, we'll include this, this back for you, but um, generally this is pertaining to um, granting a variance for um, a home that might be encroaching into the five foot setback. And so we talk here about how the practical difficulty is not self-created um, this might refer us back to that example of the, the funny shaped lot with the wetland in it, where we would say um, unique circumstances of the lot, specifically the unusual shape of the lot and presence of unbuildable areas elsewhere on this lot. Um, that we would say does substantial justice to the applicant by allowing the construction of a home similar to those on surrounding lots. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be reasonable to ask an applicant to construct a home that is significantly smaller than the neighboring homes um, in, in a case where we might be able to grant a variance. Um, that we don't think that the uh, improvement would have an unnecessary uh, or a negative impact on surrounding properties um, and that um, the applicant is requesting the smallest possible variance and um, Maybe we had the last one where we said the approval is conditioned on the placement of all noise generating equipment um, in other yards than the eastern side yards. We know we've, we've reduced the setback that's permitted on one side. We don't want to add in the additional um, burden of the mechanical equipment. So we may say that, that has to go on the other side. So that would be a, an example of a condition that would be reasonable in this case. There could be a case where if we were looking at the first one um, where we had that just very simple rectangle property. Um, that we would say we deny the variance, um, that the practical difficulty is self-created and not due to any unique circumstances of the lot, particularly given its regular shape and flat surface, um, that the granting of the, the variance may have an impact on surrounding properties, um, and that the applicant has not demonstrated any other alternatives were considered that would allow the home to be built in conformance with the ordinance or with the smallest possible variance. And so those would be a couple of different options, but those the reasons for those, either the approval or denial of a variance would be very important in your motion. 
um, these are not valid reasons to grant an ordinance, uh, a variance. Um, so following the ordinance would be expensive for the applicant. That's generally not to be considered a, a good reason um, to grant a variance. No one objected. That may be true that current property owners don't have an issue with a project, but we also we have to be thinking ahead to remember that future people may have an issue. Um, the applicant already built it. That's a tough one. Um, and it can be hard for community to, um, to rectify that. Um, although I have worked with communities where improvements were made um, and the ZBA made a denial and that implement had, uh, that uh, improvement had to go. And so that does happen. Um, I don't like that standard of the zoning ordinance. You might not like it, um, but it's there. And so we have to um, follow it. Um, however, if you don't like it, um, that's information that would be worth sharing with the planning commission. So the planning commission who has that responsibility of looking at ordinance language um, might also share those same feelings and think about are there other ways we can get at the same goal? What are we trying to accomplish by the standard in the ordinance? Um, you know, and so what is it that we don't like? Is there some way that we can change it to either eliminate it altogether or modify it in a way that seems to be more practical? Um, we trust that the applicant will do a good job or the applicant really needs to get started soon or the applicant didn't know about that standard. We have to um, ensure that people know what they're getting into when they get started. So we do the best that we can with giving people the information that they need um, in a way that they can find it. Everything is available on the city's website. Um, and we always encourage folks to really take a look at the ordinance before they submit their um, projects. Um, keep in mind that um, Again, you have all those for, for minutes and adjournment. Those are approved by the majority of those people present. Let's skip to the next one. Um, so the concurring vote of majority of the ZBA members is required to pass a motion and appeals to any decision of the ZBA are then going to the circuit court. Um, Rehearing the same case of the ZBA after a denial cannot occur unless there's a substantive change in the requested variance of appeal. So, or appeal. So, for example, if this case we had uh, the home that had the three foot encroachment, if they redesigned their project and they came back with foot and a half encroachment, um, that might be something that the ZBA would then reconsider. Um, the the um, recordings of the minutes um, are filed at the city. Um, variances do run with the land, so it's really important to have a record on file of everything. Um, these do go into the city's BSNA um, uh, system, and so we are able to track then from property, uh, you know, over time, any variances that may have been granted. Um, it is a good idea to check for existing variances on a property when a new application is submitted so that we know um, what's happened in the past. Um, and then the next slide is just about um, compliance and follow-up. Um, are there any questions at this point? I have uh, one. Yes. I, have one. I think I know the answer to it, but I want to ask it just because we have something coming up next month that's mm -hmm. going to be somewhat similar. But obviously the hardship can't be self-created. Mm -hmm. But when you purchase a home, mm -hmm. you inherit the self-creations, correct? So for example, if, if I buy a house that has a deck on it mm -hmm. and I want to put a... Uh, air conditioner. I can't put an air conditioner in the backyard because I've got a deck and I want to have variance so I can put it on the side lot. Mm -hmm. That's still considered self-created, correct? I'll defer to Scott to answer that. It, it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, I, excuse me, I would agree. I think, you know, in that scenario, 
you know, the city allows for residents to have a deck in their backyard. It's not like they uh, inherited a pond or something. Like right. That. that would be a little bit different. So, and and again, it's it's a case by case. Yeah, thing. it's a case so by it really case. It's going to vary depending on the situation of the home, the size of the deck, the location of it, and if there's really no other location. I mean, the question might be, um, to Scott's point about you know. If the other homes in the neighborhood have decks and this house has a deck, is it reasonable to ask this deck, this homeowner to remove the deck completely to put in the air conditioner? Do other homes in the neighborhood have air conditioners? Probably. Um, so it may be something where you're kind of looking at the context of all the other homes. And the other thing to do in that type of a scenario, and Jill references, is to look back through the city's records and see has this request come up before? If it has, how was it addressed at that point in time? And, and one of the key factors is to remain consistent mm -hmm. with what you do uh, because arbitrary and capricious decisions are not upholdable. So um, it, that that's an important component. And that's generally where your consultants will come in. Uh, planner and myself will say, okay, we've had two or three requests on the same issue. And this is how the city has proceeded previously these were the facts in those cases and they're either similar or dissimilar to what we're looking at in this particular case. Um, something else was say. Well, I was thinking of something while you were talking, which was about um, not to be overly concerned about precedent setting necessarily, um, because even if you do grant a variance for one air conditioner and one side yard uh, for a certain property with certain Findings of fact that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to apply in the next case. You know, it's yeah, so we look to the past for some of the to be consistent, and yet we're not saying, well, you granted one three doors down. Mm -hmm. Well, that might have been a completely different situation. And that's why it's very important to make that detailed finding of fact when you are mm -hmm. making your decision. I remember what the other thing was. Now, and you did reference it earlier. It was the example was the tough sheds we had a few yeah. years ago. If, if the city starts to receive multiple requests for the same variance from the same provision, then that's also an indicator that it might be time to take a look at uh, what our standards are and, and revisit those for potential amendment. Right. The ordinance is, the ordinances are written, you know, most of the ordinances were written many, many years ago. Um, but the ordinance, zoning ordinance is a living document and we do update it from time to time. Um, you know, as things come up. So things change in the way that we live, the way we work. And um, so sometimes we do need to make adjustments to the ordinances with respect to setbacks <clears throat> and things of that nature. All right, what's, what's coming next month? It's just a ZBA request or the residents are requesting that. Oh, there it is. Oh, is that something we all know what she's all about? Well, I mean, I was contacted directly by the resident and why I know about it. Oh, okay. So the next few slides are just to wrap it up, um, etiquette and procedures. Um, so this gets into um, whether your, you know, your roles as when well, you're, it's a little bit different, your role as a council um, and the ZBA, you are participating in this, but you remember that your role is in this case is as the ZBA and not as council. Um, we um, do try to look at uh, some of the um, standards for if we have a conflict of interest or things like that. Um, let's switch on to the next one. Actually, I'm switch to the next one because we don't have alternates here. Um, the conflict of interest, though, is the next slide. 
So it is not unusual um, in a community where um, you live that and serve on the, on the board that you may have conflicts of interest arise. So if there's a remote possibility that your decision um, could benefit a ZBA member personally, it's important to um, share that with the ZBA. Um, and then if it's you, perhaps uh, recuse yourself from consideration of the issue. If you're not sure whether you should recuse yourself or not, or not it's good to check with the city attorney um, to clear that. Um, really the, the primary, one of the primary uh, points is if you stand to benefit financially from the outcome of the case, that's definitely a conflict of interest. Um, it could be a family member, it could be um, somebody that you work with. There can be varying lines of whether there may be a conflict or not. Um, I think just disclosing that, if, even if you believe that um, you don't have a conflict of interest um, and that you can uh, render an impartial decision, an objective decision, just saying it for the record, um, oh, you know, this is um, a friend of mine. We serve on the garden club together, um, but I think I can be objective in this case, just to, say, to, to let people know. Um, if you are recused though, it's best practice to not participate in any of the discussion. Um, it sometimes it is depending on the community and the, the recommendations of the attorney, um, even good idea to leave the room with you if you feel like you have it, just having a presence in the room can sometimes throw people off. Um, I think you've got that in your bylaws. So you've got a whole section on conflict of interest in the ordinance, I believe. Anything you want to add on that one? No, I think you've pretty well touched on all of it. Um, in the past, we haven't made people leave leave the room if there is an issue, but, yeah. but I agree, not participating in the discussion especially certainly not making the motion, um, you right. know, is appropriate if, if there is that issue. Yeah. Um, if you go to the next slide, just a couple, and I sort of said this already, um, conflicts, if you're the applicant or a close relative is the applicant, a business associate or a close personal friend, potentially. Um, and again, you can have that conversation. Um, just the last couple, um, email communication. This is just one that we put into um, this next slide. Um, put into all of our trainings for um, CBA and planning commission. Um, and there's no reason to have any kind of communication happening via email. Um, even if it's a passive comment, um, even if it may not violate technically the Open Meetings Act, it's just really best practice to not discuss CBA matters outside of the CBA meeting. Um, and so, you know, when we get a, a, a note, maybe your agenda packet, um, please don't ever reply all with a question or with a comment about anything. Um, you'll get a, I think, probably a very rapid response to all saying, do not reply to all. Um, and I just had this happen in another community where I, I thanked someone for making a comment and I said, please um, don't reply all. And then I immediately got back, I reply all from somebody telling me, thank you. Okay, good, thanks. Um, it can be tempting. It's just, you know, you're trying to be courteous. You want to kind of clear, clear things up. Um, if you have a question, it's best to direct that to staff or to Scott um, before the meeting. And if you do have questions before the meeting, um, it's definitely worth shooting an email out to staff or to Scott just to clarify something. If there's information that maybe the applicant can um, provide ahead um, to help you with your decision at the meeting, I think that's, that's great. Anything you want to add on that one? 
you know, um, going back to the conflict thing, oh, it, yeah. it, it just made me think, just because you are on the this body doesn't mean you can't request the variance yourself right. as a resident. So yeah, you, right. you're not sacrificing that ability by sitting on council and reviewing it. So right, good point. Right, absolutely. That's why we have multiple people on the DBA. Um, conducting site visits, we just have a couple more slides. Um, I think this is really helpful to, um, you know, if you can go by the project uh, that's going to be discussed. Um, don't enter the site without permission from the property owner. Um, if you do ask them if you could see if maybe it's something in the backyard and you're just curious, you can contact um, them about that. Um, we should not ever have a forum gathering at the applicant's home uh, at any time. Um, avoid commenting on anything. Um, really, you're just there to, to, to see the project, see the potential improvements, see the context, what's happening with the neighbors, how close are we to the street, um, looking at those, those key things that you think would be helpful. Um, it's, it's, it's good. Um, you can see the things written, the, the written materials that will be in your packets. You can see the, the 2D version of the plan, um, but it's helpful to go see everything in person too, um, just to give you a, a feel for what's happening in the, in the area. Um, again, for the ZBA, it's just best practices to, um, as we said, you know, follow your procedures in every case, be consistent. I think consistency is probably one of the most important things. Um, avoiding conflicts of interest, keep good records, um, make strong motions that record your reasons for taking a given action and treat all the applicants the same way is really essential. So that's it. And I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have or any questions for Scott, too? Anything else you want to add? One of the MML trainings that I went to two years ago, they, they talked about on the variance application, they they have a lot of communities that when the applicant signs the, mm -hmm. the um, variance request, they, yes. they also are giving permission for the DBA members to mm -hmm. look at the issue in person. Have we ever thought about doing that here? I think that's a great idea. If we haven't yet, I think. Um, I feel like we did talk about that. I brought it up about so three years ago. So. And we, didn't, we never. I remember never we did it in the past, but I think it's a good idea to to make note of that. Yeah, yeah, it's good for site plan reviews too. It could be the cover of the application that you allow that when you yeah. are making an application for anything. Yeah. yeah, it's a good idea. Any other questions from our newer ZBA members? And it's kind of oh, so your inner. I mean, your PowerPoint was pretty detailed. Is that all in the, the two pages or the the few pages that we have in most of the big okay. the highlights are yes about making motions and conflicts of interest and communication i think so okay um, but we can share the rest of this with you too okay thank you but one one last question so um so when, when we talked about if a person built it already, but they have to take it down. And so we need to go and make sure that, you know, the follow-up basically, that would be with Giffels and Webster, right? And we would or, probably, if it was something like that, it would likely be the building official. Okay. Yeah. And that doesn't come up very often. Because typically there will, be a, there have, will have been a building permit Right. And then usually those things are, are identified before the building permit. Not always, sometimes things go through the cracks, but 
Anybody got anything else? Oh, well, thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so we will move on to the next item on the agenda, which is um, uh, our sanitary sewers. Um, about a year ago, we did um, uh, televising and, and cleaning of about 32,000 uh, linear feet. And um, in the capital improvement bond, we budgeted for um, roughly about a half a million dollars of, of subsequent repairs that would be based on the, the tele televising of, of those 32,000 linear feet. So um, that televising has been done, it's been analyzed, and, and Scott uh, Ringler, our city engineer, is here to, here to talk about that. So take it away, Scott. I'm sure this is a subject everyone came for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Better than sewer backup. Yeah. So as Bruce said, uh, in 2020, the city went out for bids to do uh, about 32,000 lineal feet of uh, sanitary sewer cleaning and televising. Uh, that work was completed in the winter of 2021. It took them about six months to do. Uh, and since then, uh, we've been evaluating what we call assessing the, uh, the sewer system itself. So we get videotapes, we go through and analyze them. Uh, we rank them. I don't, is there any way to put this on screen? If not, you guys all have a report? Have okay, uh, we'll just go through the report quick. So on the first page, and I wish I would have numbered these pages, the three different types of sewers that we looked at were sewers that we had no known uh, condition of that sewer. The second one was sewers that we actually knew were in good condition, but that was back in the 1990s, so it was over 20 years ago. Uh, and then the third one is some of these sewers back in the 90s, the joints were grouted. Uh, which is basically forcing grout into all the joints uh, that don't hold pressure to try to, to fill the leaks that are in there with grout. So then were the three different types of sewers that we looked at. Uh, and as far as the assessment, so the sewer company that does the analysis and the videotaping rates the sewers. And they give it, you know, a grade five is a really bad defect. It's a broken pipe, it might be a collapse all the way down to a grade one, which is a minor defect. Subsequently, uh, we get them numbers and then I go through and actually review all these videotapes and I give it my own assessment. Same thing, basically a condition five, which is going to be on page six, uh, which a condition five, it's in really bad structural condition. Uh, condition four, it's in poor condition. You know, there could be some flow restrictions. There could be a lot of roots, mineral deposits. Uh, condition three is where flow may be impeded. There may be some root intrusions, some mineral deposits, uh, all the way down to condition one where it's in really good condition. So if you look at the chart that's on there, uh, I only made a sample of this, but there's a column called structural column called operational maintenance and then an overall. So these conditions here is what the sewer company rates. So that first one, 00 to 1-53 is a 10 inch pipe, it's 125 foot long. Uh, the pipe rating is a four. The pipe rating index is a four because what I look at is the quick rating. So that 4100 is the two worst conditions on that sewer pipe. So the worst condition is a four. 
and the next number is a one. So that means there was only one condition for a defect on that pipe. And then there was no other defects on that part. Uh, under operation and maintenance, which is usually roots, cleanliness, uh, mineral deposits, a few other different defects that are in a pipe, there was none. So in other words, that pipe's in pretty good condition with the exception of that one uh, number four defect. Uh, and if you look at the 2020 GW ratings, that's my rating. So I rated that as a four. Uh, the, the next column is the number of services. I like to keep track of them. But our recommendation on that one is a PR, which is a point repair. We actually got to go in and do an excavation to fix it's that. Cap, can you uh, define what number of services is? Because I'm oh, it's, a lot it's, of people so that, that 125 foot of sewer doesn't have any residential services connected to right. it. Uh, the next one, you'll see a number five. It has five residents or businesses connections to it. So we can think we did 120 sewer segments that we went through and rated. So uh, the next sheet, which is going to be seven, page seven. Uh, so out of the 32,000 feet of sewers that were assessed, about 9% of them were what we classified as condition five. 13.5% were condition four. About 33% were condition three. 25% were condition two, and about 20% were condition one sewers. So, and then, uh, you know, I, I have a chart there that talks about each of the different ones, the unknowns, the knowns, and the, the previously grouted. Uh, they all ranked about the same as far as condition one through five for each of them different types of sewers. Uh, and then the next sheet is basically just a graph of uh, what the conditions came out to be. So some of our observations, uh, about 45% were condition one or two with no work required at this time. About 33% of the sewers were assessed with condition three. Uh, some of them we recommend to do here in place pipe. Some of them we just want to monitor. So monitoring means the next time we do a sanitary sewer evaluation, we should be re-looking at them. Uh, and that's usually, we've been doing about every 10 years on these sewers. Uh, about 22% of the sewers were assessed as a condition four or five in which we're recommending cured in place pipe. Uh, and the majority of these sewers are easement sewers. So they're in, the, in people's backyards. Very uh, difficult to get to, to sometimes. Uh, unfortunately, we find fences built on them, garages really close. They're not easily accessible. Can, can, you, can you define for everyone the cured in pipe process? Okay, so cured in place pipe is a, is a trenchless technology where you're actually inverting. It, it's really an inversion of a resin filled uh, belt slash vinyl bag. So when I say it's trenchless, they go from one manhole and they invert the, the bag all the way to the end of the manhole. Okay, and then they, in, not inject, but they have hot water that goes into it. That hot water is heated to about 180 degrees, which starts to cure the resins. So once that resin is cured, it turns into like a PVC pipe, really, really hard. Uh, them pipes are usually a quarter inch to a half inch in diameter. So it's a 50 year design. 
uh, it's really a great process. It, it takes about a day to do these and you're in and out with no excavation. Uh, once that pipe is cured, then they go, they go through and they actually cut out everybody's service. Uh, with that water pressure, it indents where your service lead is because there's a little hole there. So they're able to find them indentations and they cut them out. So, so although they're in like people's backyards, you still, you said it's hard to get to. Are you going to have trouble even though it's trenchless or? They do have equipment back there. There shouldn't be any excavation. There shouldn't be any excavation unless we got to make a point repair. They can't do every one, every sewer like that. If there's a really bad collapse, we got to fix that collapse before they can do the inversion. Okay. Uh, a couple other things. We also evaluated there, there's a, some large diameter sanitaries along westbound 11 mile and also Evergreen. Uh, fortunately, them were in really good condition, other than they were really dirty. Uh, there was up to six to 10 inches of debris in them sewers. So it really reduced the capacity of the sewer system. Uh, and then we also, and we know of these, we had quite a few uh, sewers that have no manhole at the upper end. Uh, we really, to do the inversion, you got to have a manhole at each end. So as part of our recommendation is to start inserting, constructing some upper end manholes. So on page. <laughs> well, the next page under our recommendation. So we are recommending uh, out of the 32,000 feet of sewers that about 11,000 of them be uh, uh, repaired with cured in place pipe. Uh, that's a little over two miles of uh, sewer repairs. And also to install five upper end manholes to support the lining of these sewers. And then on the, the first page of the pictures, I tried to put a few of these pictures on what we run into. Uh, the interesting one, and I think Bruce touched on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, the top left one. Uh, so the rumble drain was installed on the east side of, of the high school, and it runs from 12 mile down to almost 11 mile. It cuts down Evergreen, just north of uh, Saratoga. Uh, but it's interesting because that top left sewer actually runs through the rumble drain. They built the rumble drain around it. And the best I can spot out, you can see that break in the bottom of the pipe. I think that's right in the rumble drain. So when the rumble drain starts to head up too far above this pipe, cracked pipe, all that water is going through this cracked pipe and directly into the retention pipe. That's a, that's a big thing. You didn't mention that, but a lot, a lot of the the cure in place originally started because of an influx of, of storm water into our sanitary system and the city pays per gallon for, for sanitary to get rid of that sanitary water that goes through our tank so that that's that, that's largely in part why this program was started yeah and i think it's important to note when you were talking earlier about the grouting that took place um with packer i mean that that the same thing it's to, to, yeah. to seal those grout the, the grout between pipes so that water doesn't seep into the sanitary sewer pipes and go to our tank and then we have to pay to get rid of it so uh we actually we, we popped a few manholes the last few weeks uh we, we don't think the rumble's headed up enough to get into that pipe but with with the rainy event we had like last thursday we didn't see that much more flow coming through there so we're trying to keep an eye on that 
the, the one just underneath that are some of the sewers we found with roots. That, them are roots that it's in the sewer system, uh, the middle two. So you can see it's, there's a lot of roots that come through the joints. They're thirsty, they're trying to find water and that's where they're getting it at. Uh, the bottom two pictures, the bottom left is, is actually an upper end manhole, but it's really not a manhole. It's a six inch pipe that comes up to grade. So that's something that, that we're going to have to excavate and put a real manhole there. Uh, the bottom right, uh, these are basically, you know, contractors, they tap their sewers, they push this pipe way in there. We call it a protruding tap. Uh, our video camera can't get past that. Uh, and then when you do need to line that, we got to cut that down so there's more expense there. So uh, them are things when, you know, the building official goes out and reviews these when they're doing these sewer taps to keep an eye on. So Scott, when we, and I guess maybe this is Scott and Susie, when, when we have instances, obviously that's not, uh, that's against code when they have their taps that go into, into the, the, the temporary yeah. line. When we encounter those, um, do we bill back the, the particular resident or do we just eat that cost? Well, we, we haven't, that's that's an extreme case there. And that's yeah. a PVC pipe, that's hard to cut. Yeah. Uh, the one right before that you can see, I mean, it, it's barely protruding, but it's a clay pipe. So when they go to pre-clean this sewer, uh, with the equipment they have, they just, kind of, this equipment rips around that pipe, it breaks it off really clean. Uh, the PVC one might be a little more of an issue. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, you know, knowing the sewer, the location, the lineal foot, I can tell you exactly where that sewer is and who owns it. Uh, the next page, the top ones are, so these are some of your residents' uh, sewer leads. Uh, not only does the city sewer get a lot of leads, but so do the, the residents' leads. Uh, you can see them, some of them are almost fully impacted. Uh, the middle pictures, uh, these are sewers that have a lot of debris. So them black stripes that are there, that was all debris that's built up. Uh, so part of doing this cleaning and televising, we were able to clean all these sewers. Uh, the bottom ones are actually pipes that were in good condition. The bottom left is a concrete pipe and the bottom right one's a clay pipe. And the last page is actually one that was actually had steered in place pipe already installed. Uh, that we videotaped it looked like it, it wasn't really good condition other than you can see all the, the black there that's all uh, debris that's in that sewer uh, with that we prepared a cost estimate uh, it's our estimated cost that uh, the lining is going to be about six hundred and sixty five thousand dollars uh, the five manhole installation is about forty-six thousand. For a total estimated cost of about seven hundred. In which, uh, when we put together the bond issue, we're estimating about four hundred eighty thousand dollars in cost. With that, we would like to uh, bids. Uh, we'll get some bids back in probably the next four to six weeks. Come back to council with the, with the recommendations, see what the numbers come in at. With that, I'll take any questions. Okay, this is it. This is the problem. Um, I'm no. sorry, that I didn't realize when I printed out the packets that there were um, oddly shaped 
pages that were included in there. So I'm sorry. Uh, much done. I, and I apologize too, because the maps I give Susie are really big maps and they're hard to kind of show on a eight and a half by 11. It, it's in, it shows up appropriately in the electronic packet though. So sorry about that. It's hard to catch. I'm one corner. Um, do you have a, is it on there where the five manhole covers are going? Oh boy, them? it might be, you're going to have to search for them. And are they going in a road? Are they going on property? Where do you a little boat. Okay, uh, I'd like to see that and what they look like. Well, it's a manhole, it's a four foot diameter manhole. They're usually as deep as the sewer. The sewers are usually eight to 10 foot deep. Okay. They're, they're below your basements. Right. I think we have what 15, 18 of these in our capital improvement plan. No, I think we still have about 30 of them. 30 we do. Okay. We just need five to do right. It's actually four upper ends. There's one intermediate. Uh, actually, the property just north of the school. They actually have a 10 inch sewer that runs underneath the school. And that sewer is 680 feet long. So we want to put an intermediate in there. Yeah, I guess the point I was making is that, that by, by completing those so, five, we're, we're knocking off some of what's on our capital improvement plan as well. I, I would, I'll have to get you the locations. They're, they're on the yellow map, but you have to. Yeah, I found a couple. The green ones, the sewers, we want to line. So we got to correlate the green ones with where there's a manhole needed. They're on there. They're pink and, yeah, pink pink and blue. blue. Thank you. I think the city back in 08 or 09 did about 30 of these manholes, too. It's, it's, it's a difficult project. Here in people's backyards, there's trees. We try to get that, we try to get it out into the right of way. That's can't always do that. There's no other questions. Can I add one more thing? Yeah, please. So the storm sewer system. Uh, and if you recall, the city got a grant for two hundred thousand dollars to the storm sewer. Uh, cleaning and televising, uh, that project's out for bid. Bids are due March 15th. So uh, I'm suspecting probably the later meeting in March will bring that uh, recommendation to council, see what the bids come in at. Okay. Anybody have anything else? Okay, um, last item on the agenda is the discussion of, of backfilling. Um, so this is um, what we've talked about in the last two meetings um, about potentially backfilling the water customer, the, the 70 or so water customers who have one and a half inch meters, uh, where we had the uh, erroneous reads for about four years, where uh, we were doing four digit reads and basing the billing on four digit reads versus, versus five digit reads. Um, I did put together, I know we, there was a little confusion in, in some of the um, in some of the discussions we had last time. Explain you know, the issue. We talked about it a little bit, but um, one of the issues that we we started to talk about was the um, 
the, the, the difficulty of, of determining how many how many units to, to backfill. And when Pam put together her, her spreadsheet for us um, a few weeks ago, uh, basically what she did is she looked at the, the last known five digit read for a, a given customer and then looked at the first five digit read after the, the customer was filled the first time after the, the correction and then subtracted out those two. And that's how we determined how many units of water they actually use. And then we went through that same period and looked at how many did we actually bill them for and we could subtract the one from the other to determine, you know, how many units do they need to be backfilled for. But where the where the difficulty came in is, um, and I think where some of the confusion in our discussion came in was when we go to apply a rate against that number of units. The problem that we have is that we because we only have four digit reads, we can't determine how many of those units were in year one, year two, year three, and year four. Um, and so, so what, what we had talked a little bit about, or at least I had proposed and talked to Scott about, was billing them the, the lowest unit cost over those four years. That way, we were guaranteeing the fact that we're not overbilling anybody. So what, what, this, what this diagram that I put together kind of shows is above the line is the five-digit read. So that's the actual, that's the actual read off of, off of the meter, regardless of whether it was erroneously read by our system of four digits or five digits. And below the line is the actual four-digit reading that we would then record in the system. So for example, um, at the very beginning on the far left, you've got a meter that, that's reading 10,000. And then at the end of year one, it's reading 10,120. So the, the, the meter actually shows 10,120, but what we would be taking off of the, the, the read the four digits is the 1012. And now if you go forward to the end of year two, so now the meter reads 10,229. So again, that's exactly what's on the meter. So if you, if you subtract that, those two, you, you see that they've actually used 109 units of water. Um, but if you look at the four digit reads below, you go from 1012 to 1022. And so if you subtract those, you can come out with, with 10. And if you want to try to figure out, you know, how much they use in that year, you know, you could say, all right, well, we can try to multiply by 10 to, um, to compensate for that missing digit. But when you do that, you come out with 100. And so in, in this particular case, they've actually used 109 units, um, but we would only be billing them for 100. So they would be basically getting 90 units for free. And then the next example, um, it actually flips the other way around. So you've got 10229 for the beginning read. And at the end of year three, you're at 10330. So again, subtracting that, that's 101 units that were actually used. But again, if you use the four digit read, and subtract the 1022 from the 1033, you get 11. So we would build them for 110. So in this case, we'd be building them for 10 units, nine units more than they, they actually use. So the, so the issue is, is because of the, the four digit read, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pam, um, you know, the, you, you can't figure for any given period um, how many units they use in that particular period. Right. So you can't add just a zero to the if, it, if they had if it was four you can't say it was forty. Well, that that's that's what I'm showing here. Well, I, I see what you're showing there, but I went through did several of them and it was pretty close. Um, so uh, to disregard that and go with the lowest unit, lowest rate, that doesn't. I don't know what you're saying. So the lowest. So, so the, you're, you're, 
because again, the issue, and again, Pam, correct me if I'm wrong, you can't really figure out. I mean, you can you can come up, you can come close within nine units, right? Because for each each given period that you take up based on a four-digit read, you have a, a potential of, of plus or minus nine units of error. So you can you can get close, but the problem is, is how do you tell somebody that you're billing them? Oh, we think you were on a hundred units. Well, the other thing too is just adding the zero. One billing, they might have been at zero, but the next billing, they were at 10. Then they'd be at zero, then they'd be at 10. So how do you figure that out when you're billing somebody zero so that you actually, you're billing them a four unit for one billing period. And then the next billing period, they're being billed 10 units. But there were some people that weren't billed for, they were billed for zero units. Mm -hmm. Oh, because the ones I was going through were four, five. And if you added, if you've made it 40 and 50, get about, but there, that's, I think, and that's why it got changed because depending on the multiplier, there were people that were being billed zero or 10, zero or 10. And those think, are the ones that were being, that we had the problems with, that were coming in and complaining. Yeah, and then just in, in terms of the, the rate, I mean, we're, we're not talking, the, the, the fact that we'd be charging them the lowest rate, I mean, the difference between the lowest and the, and the, the current rate is only, about a dollar, about a dollar a unit. And looking at, you know, so so for example, if we if, if we if we could come if we could come out with some way of figuring out the amount per year. So so for example, in year one, you still got the number of the actual rate under each year. So in year one, you know, if we if we do charge the lowest rate, so in year one, there's there's no loss whatsoever because we're charging them the rate that was in effect in that year. In the next year, it goes up about two percent. Third year it goes up four percent. The, the the fourth year it goes up six percent. So if you look at the average across the, the, the four years, you're talking about two point five percent roughly. If you apply that to the one hundred and thirty thousand dollars that we're looking to get back, you're talking about three thousand dollars. So there's a potential loss here of about three thousand dollars out of one hundred and thirty thousand in recovery. So it's not a huge number. Um, and and again, there, there's there's really no way to figure out exactly how much. To apply to each of the individual rates, so you can't do it anyway. So the, the, the if you charge them the lowest rate, then it, again, it's not a huge difference, and and it's I mean Scott, we talked about this earlier. It's legally defensible because we're not overcharging it. There's no potential of overcharging. That's the biggest. But we've overcharged other residents to make up for the shortfall. So the piece, I'm excuse me. How, how have we done that? You didn't have to raise the rates to make up for six hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars of was not billing. But I guess I'm not following how that applies to, to the all of the other residents' rates went up. As did these residents. Well they're not going to be going up if you if you were to underbuild amount. Right, but again we're talking about three thousand three thousand dollars to get back a hundred and thirty thousand. So I, I again again I, I don't know how else you would do it. Okay. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you, Karen. I would love to be able to charge, you know, you know, ten units times the eleven dollar rate, fifteen units times the twelve dollar rate, and so forth. But I, I don't know how you would do it. And again, our treasurer is telling us there's no way to do it as well. So, did, were, was every um, did every account? Did you look at every account to see where this occurred? Did you go through every single account, or they all fluctuated when they were done. 
Um, and I even went to, or talked to Bruce about it, that if somebody was in, like, um, if it started, I'm just going to get thrown out a date, let's say it's starting 2011, if they were all charged, this, but then somebody else that might have started in 2012 or 2013, they should be at that rate at that time. So it's not, everybody's going to get the 11. It depends on when they, the, the older ones, the first year it was a, a in effect, they would get the 11. But if somebody didn't, it didn't change until two years later, then they're going to get that rate into the two year rate that was in effect at that time. Right. So that'll reduce the, the roughly $3,000 that we'll lose because, you know. Right. But okay. well, yeah, because some of them was, it, it, it didn't happen for four years, right? It happened for two years or three right. years right. or one year or whenever right. it happened to be adjusted. Right. So we're not going to take all of them back to 11 point. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, right. so to be real specific, like if, if somebody started in year three and year four, you know, they're, they're going to go customer by customer. So, so that particular person, when I say the lowest rate, they would be charged $12.23 for, for all that they used in year three and year four. So it's going to reduce the amount that we're going to lose. Okay. Um, that, was, that wasn't clear. Yeah. Um, and then when these were, when you discovered this and you raised them back up, adding the zero back on, were there, were actual re meter readings done at that point? There were reads done through our, our system that went into the, um, when we did the reads, when we went drive around. by. Mm -hmm. And if there were any problems, then we sent the gentleman out to do manual reading. Okay. So did the, the majority of them match up? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then I did notice, um, what, what is happening with Michigan first? Theirs was, I don't see that theirs was ever adjusted back up. I would have to look into that one because we have to look at every single account properly on this. Okay. Oh, okay. So you are going to do that, but you haven't done that yet. I have not had time to do it yet. Okay. Okay. So there's a possibility that this could be could be different. A lot more than one hundred thirty thousand dollars. Okay. Well, that that is a. And I think Michigan first. I think they're a two inch or a three inch meter. Right. I don't. I think they have a larger meter than a one and a half inch meter. And that wasn't impacting. No. So if you go back, there's they went from five digits to four digits. So I wasn't sure what happened. I'll have to look at their, their meter size. Back quite some time ago. So I'll look at the meter size on that. Okay. And there, and it doesn't show any indication of after during the construction, which is when that we had that big jump. And then when the building was finished, which you know, much larger, there is no indication that their bills went up or their usage went up at all during that time. So well, I think in one, one of our meetings we talked about, you know, resident, I can't remember, but it was, it was like, well, what if what if there was a line during that that time period that that somehow got in and wasn't going through the meter? But then again, how do you ever know that? Right. I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if I analyze right, 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 right. I mean, I mean, it, you, you've got to get to it through a, a lot of a lot of investigation. You know, eliminating yeah. a lot of options. Yeah, you were going to say something before. No, I was just going to I was going to echo your statement that it, it becomes more legally defensible. And if if we're talking about three thousand dollars, you may the city may spend more than three thousand dollars trying to justify the back billing um, at the various rates versus what they would ultimately recover. So. Right. It, I guess the other the other question I wanted to throw out to everybody, and you know, with all the other 
things that we're doing right now, sidewalks, culvert replacements, everything we've been giving people two years, you know, allowing them to pay monthly and, and giving them two years, which to me seems reasonable given the amounts here. I don't know how other people feel about that, whether it should be one year, whether it should be different than the two years, three years, you know. Well, could there be different options depending on how much is owed? I mean, there's some that owe a lot and some that don't owe a lot. So. Yeah, what I, what I did notice is, is most of, for the most part, going through the, the list of 70, the, um, for the most part, residents were mostly under $2,000. It was the businesses and the condos that were, were over that. Well, what's the difference with a condo being a different than a residence? I can correct me if I'm wrong, Pam, but my understanding is that sometimes the condos, the water is included in the condo, and so they, it goes through one meter. It's included in the condo association. It can have four buildings in one meter. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, anybody have any thoughts on that? Like two years or more time for businesses or more time based on a dollar amount? I would say based on a dollar amount if that's possible. And based on the situation, some some that might not be a big deal, others it might be a real hardship to you know do it over three years. I don't know. All right, and uh, we'll go to council, uh, mayor and council comments. We have um, five minutes, or actually three minutes, to do the uh, mayor and council comments. So, if there's anything that is pressing um, for the mayor and council comments, which I don't have anything now to say, but um, if any of the council has anything to say, uh, if we can limit that so we can make sure that we get the uh, public comments and then we can uh, take up in the meeting if there's something that was not covered. Anything? Okay, so. No, I'll stop. Was there anyone from council that had anything for the study session? or anything. Okay, you're gonna open up the public comment to see if there's anyone from the public that wanted to say anything. Should we there's someone in the hallway? to bring up my water bill because I got a notice for PS due and um, keep good records and I looked and I, I wasn't and I called and they said, oh, just forget about it. You don't know anything. And they, so they checked me off and not owing anything. 
And I looked back in my records and I found the amount. And I was like a couple days late, but I paid the late fee. And I'm usually not late, I'm sorry. But um, my point is like all these people that might've had like a, a late bill, the record wasn't updated before they mailed it. So um, like, unless you called and found out you didn't know it, some people might just pay. But I thought I should bring it up because the record should have been updated before they billed people. <laughs> and I thought it's a waste of postage. And um, what if somebody doesn't question it because they threatened to put it on your taxes? And I'm like, no, I, I, I pay my water bills. I, I was late. Um, so I just was concerned about, because I know there's, I just was concerned. That was our special assessment letter that went out. And um, I had assumed that the person that was supposed to be doing it had taken them off and that. But before they go to taxes, we do check it again. Before I take it off the account, we do check it to make sure that the people that have paid the special assessment is off. So we will double check that again before. I just thought like some of these people, it would affect that they mailed those bills to because it was a waste of postage. And I thought, how many people like, there were a lot of them still out there. Okay. Well, it's just my point. Can I ask a question? Yes, please. Is that related to this building or was that a different building? No, that's a different. That's the special assessment that we brought to you in January. Gotcha. So this one hasn't even done yet. No. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up? Um, is it the appropriate time to talk about quick fix? Do that or should you do that in a meeting? Pardon me? I wonder, did you do that or if you should do it in a meeting? Or? I don't know. I, I'm not familiar, but I looked it up and I saw some agenda. So I just thought I would like speak about that. Should I wait? Is it something that was on the um, agenda for the meeting? I mean, kind of. Go ahead, Lauren. Excuse me. <laughs> it was on the meeting. It was on the agenda for the meeting that yeah, we're going to have. Thought I, yeah. I, there's nothing specific related to C click fix on the study session agenda on the regular meeting. Um, it would just be it's what's included in the consent agenda. Okay. So, so if you can wait until we go to it, because we need to go into our meeting and then it'll be a uh, public comment at the very beginning of the next meeting, just so we stay on time, if you don't mind doing that. Great, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, so I will uh, ask for a motion to adjourn so we can really um, adjourn as uh, the, because we have to switch to Zoom meetings, right? Yes, we okay. need to switch Zoom. All right, so I'm gonna ask for a motion to adjourn. Uh, uh, adjournment. Thank you, we're adjourned.